Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. Welcome to the show, my friends, and Happy New Year. You know, um, I live a bit of a kind of a off the beaten track, and it's only recently that we've uh, um, gotten a high in- high-speed internet installed here at our place, and so we could uh, uh, subscribe to some uh, streaming services like Netflix. And one of the things I uh, like to watch on Netflix is uh, Indian uh, TV and Indian uh, movies and series and uh, especially period dramas. Uh, It's really gorgeous and their culture is uh, so fascinating. And um, one of the things that are interesting about Indian culture is that um, it has undergone uh, almost 6,000 years of development but in the past uh, 500 years, they have uh, kind of come under a progressive uh, occupation, if you want to call it that, by Muslims <clears throat> from the north. First from uh, Turkey and Afghanistan, kind of uh, from further west, and then later from Persia, uh, slightly more to the north. And uh, these uh, Muslims, uh, when they conquered or be- began kind of conquering the Indian subcontinent, uh, they encountered something a little different than what they had previously encountered in many places, which was a, a very, very powerful and well-entrenched millennial, multi-millennial culture right there in, in India, and it's the Hindu culture, which had its own scriptures, its own... Uh, morality, its own ethics, its own creation myths, and an entire pantheon of deities and so on. And it was a religion, it still is, that affects um, every aspect of your everyday life. Uh, It's not just a kind of religion light like Buddhism is, which is why Buddhism never took hold in India, even though it originated there. And what happened was that um, the Indians, the Hindus, kind of uh, split in two. Those from the lower castes, uh, the various untouchables and latrine cleaners and uh, butchers and so on, uh, were quite open to converting to Islam. Whereas the upper castes, the Brahmins, you know, the priests, the Kshatriya, the warriors and so on, they were quite resistant to it. So very, very few upper caste Indians converted, whereas many, perhaps most, lower caste Indians converted, especially in northern India, where the Muslim uh, um, rulers had uh, the longest time and uh, the the most kind of, uh, the strongest grip on power. So what does that tell us? Well, we can understand the motivations behind the conversion of lower caste Indians because, uh, to be honest, the religion that they belonged to originally with its 
rigid caste system that was part of that religion didn't offer them uh, much in life and certainly no upward mobility. Um, so the teachings of Islam, which is an Abrahamic religion, religion and therefore teaches that every human being is um, given uh, by God uh, an immortal soul, and substantially in that sense all human beings are equal in, in, in front of God, <coughs> is, uh, was very attractive to, to those lower caste Indians. Um, but we also must not forget that the lower caste Indians were also the least educated ones. They were the ones that were illiterate, that um, could only partake in the rich Indian culture through hearsay. In other words, when they uh, heard sermons given by upper class Brahmins, they could not independently read uh, the Mahabharata, for example, the most important kind of Indian um, scripture, I guess you could call it. And so they relied on the interpretations given to them by uh, the, the priest caste, the, the Brahmins. And so I guess there, uh, using a kind of American uh, corporate talk, they their buy-in into this whole Hindu thing was not nearly as strong as the lit as it was with the literate Brahmins and Kshatriyas. And so they were, uh, as the Talmud would call it, an empty cart or an emptier cart, uh, which was ready to receive the teachings of Islam. Whereas the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas were already so full of the spiritual baggage, if you want to call it that, then there was that there was simply no place for anything to replace it or supplement it, so they rejected it. And we know that similarly, uh, Jews and Christians, especially the more educated ones, were resistant in places like the Balkans, <clears throat> Spain, and so on, that were occupied by Muslims, the more affluent, the more educated Christians and Jews were resistant to conversion to Islam, whereas the poorer, less educated classes uh, converted. And uh, so this was not a purely Indian phenomenon. And that this whole discussion brings me to this question of identity and patriotism. You know, the in the current debate raging in America around election fraud and, and, and all of that, and kind of the battle for the soul of America, the question of patriotism and American identity is certainly at the very center of it. And what I notice with the people that are perhaps on our side, people who voted for President Trump, uh, people who call themselves conservatives, Republicans, you name it. What I notice with, uh, with uh, those people is that as they are struggling to define their patriotism and to define what separates them from the left wing of American politics, 
they grasp at two things. One is the constitution, and the other one is an external enemy, uh, which used to be Russia and now is China. And both of these are woefully inadequate as the defining attributes of what it means to be an American patriot, and I'll tell you why. Uh, when it comes to the Constitution, it was never intended to be some sort of scripture. It was never intended to be the document that defines the American nation or that replaces the actual scripture, which uh, in America at the time of its founding was the Bible, including the Old and New Testaments. The Constitution has always been intended to be uh, a political document. I mean, a document that sets boundaries on what the government can do or, and more importantly, cannot do. And this uh, sets in writing in detail um, how the government uh, should be elected and uh, in some cases appointed and how it should function. And there is a mechanism in the Constitution, which is what primarily separates it from uh, any kind of scripture. There is a mechanism in Constitution for amending it. In other words, the Founding Fathers certainly knew that there would be changing circumstances in America and that, that the Constitution that they came up with, unlike the Holy Scripture, would need to be amended. There is no amending the Bible, no matter how much the current Pope or all the ministers, priests, and you name it, that hang the gay flags around their churches and so on, no matter how much they may wish to amend the Bible and how much they ignore the Bible as it's written, the Bible, the Holy Scripture, can, the Holy Scripture cannot be amended by the very definition of its being holy. I mean, the fact that the Bible, especially the Old Testament, survived almost entirely unchanged for close to three millennia, at least two and a half millennia, was because, precisely because it was sanctified and, and therefore changing a, a single letter and it was the greatest sacrilege. And the reason that um, Holy Scriptures cannot be amended is precisely because they are the <coughs> living Word of God. In other words, we human beings certainly cannot undertake to amend it. And the, the scriptures talk about fundamentals of what it means to be human, or in case of the um, Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, it talks about, it talks about what it means to be a Jew. These things are eternal. They are not subject to the shifting sands of time. They are not subject to people's evolving perceptions of the universe or things like technology. But the Constitution uh, was certainly not designed to be Holy Scripture. It was designed to be a living document, even though uh, the Founding Fathers intended it to be rather conservative in a sense, in the, in the sense that it would be 
fairly difficult to amend. They wanted the amendment process to be rather tedious so that it would not be amended frivolously or based on some ad hoc shifting majorities that would just decide uh, to do this and that kind of on a, on a, on a, spur, of a, on a spur of a moment. And actually, uh, however, this kind of did happen, for example, with prohibition. Was, there was this temperance movement and these ladies were marching and they really disliked it that their husbands went drinking whiskey in saloons instead of coming home and spending time with them, which is understandable. So they decided that they would put strong political pressure on uh, the political leaders in America and amend the Constitution to ban the production and sale of alcoholic drinks substantially. Well, we know that it didn't work, didn't really turn out that well. Enforcement became impossible. And, you know, the alcohol culture is very ingrained in every human civilization. So it was a, a bit of a frivolous amendment to the Constitution. But most amendments to the Constitution are meaningful and represent the times at which they were taken. So the Constitution is a living, breathing document, even though it has, by design, a fairly heavy anchor that you, you need to kind of overcome this resistance in order to amend it. But unlike Holy Scripture, it is certainly amendable by definition. So that is why clinging to the Constitution and, and carrying those pocket copies of it and so on, like they were some sort of Mao's red book, is... Um, for the lack of better, you know, word, pathetic and wrong. Because the Constitution is a political document, the same, in fact, as Mao's Red Book, except it's much better. But its fundamentals are the same because the Mao's Red Book was a political document. Perhaps we could say from our perspective, a highly misguided one, but it was nonetheless a political document that described certain political ideology or political thinking. Well, the American Constitution is the same. It's, it's foundationally, fundamentally, a political document which describes a certain political or enshrines a certain political system. Now, you could say that system is much better than that of communist China. And certainly, I agree. But it's still only a political system. So defining one's patriotism or one's sense of self through a political document is the highest of follies and it's a very, very weak source. It will not withstand the test of time. And in fact, we can see now that it's not withstanding the, the test of time. America, America and its political organization is crumbling in front of our very eyes and the Constitution cannot protect it. The Constitution is a political document who or which served uh, its time, a fairly long time by, by, by the standards of such documents in history, about a quarter of a millennium, but now it appears that it has substantially lived its course. And so those Americans who define their patriotism 
and their sense of self through the Constitution are not doing themselves any favors. This is not how you define your sense of self. Politics, in the grand scheme of things, are unimportant. Politics is just a dirty game that must be played so that we can somehow arrange a government. But as we all know, politicians are the lowest type of human being and the making of that political sausage is a dirty, dirty business. And it's only, and Churchill remarked on that already, he said that democracy is, uh, is only better, is, on, is only a good thing because all the alternatives are so much worse. Or I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But you could say that about any political system that you think it's good, it's only good because perhaps the rest of them are bad or worse. So again, tying your fortunes to some sort of political organization like the Constitution is not a smart thing to do. But what is even less smart is, is defining yourself and, and your uh, sense of self through the vilification of some sort of an enemy du jour. And more on that in the next segment. Fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older, until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to the show, folks. So we ended the... The last segment saying that patriotism and uh, one's sense of self should not rely on a political document like the Constitution. And neither should it rely on the negation or the just juxtaposition, juxtaposition to an enemy, for example, China. 
And the reason for that is that enemies come and go. I mean, America, just in the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, had several. We started with uh, Germany in the First and Second World Wars. Then we went to communist, the communist bloc, so-called, which was headed by the Soviet Union at one time and included China. And then when, in a kind of a intermediate period in, in the 90s, when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, but China has not yet become a villain, America had the enemy of Islam or radical Islam. And now all of a sudden, China is emerging as far as the American right wing is concerned. China is emerging as the arch villain. Well, let me tell you something. This whole arch villain thing is nonsense. Outside of very specific and rare instances in history like Nazi Germany, which only lasted for all of 12 years. Now, those were horrific 12 years, but it was only 12 years nonetheless. It's rare that uh, human history sees some sort of arch-villains that are much worse than the other arch-villain next door. And the same uh, can certainly be said about China. Uh, certainly China uh, today is engaging in all kinds of un you know, unsavory practices, but <clears throat> so does the U.S. So does the U.S. The U.S. has abortions uh, until right until death which very few countries if any do okay and that's murder my friends legal murder okay uh, the US has a uh, extreme problem with drug abuse okay the US has a problem with extreme uh, costs of education which in some which could be claimed to be the abuse and the dis and and kind of disenfranchising of generations upon generations of American youth. The U.S. is engaged in is is undergoing a complete collapse of morals and ethics. The Amer American families are being destroyed by the feminist and the LGBT whatever movements. These are highly immoral and destructive events uh, that are unfolding in America legally sanctioned by the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court of America. So America is on a very, very shaky ground, morally and ethically, from which to throw stones at, at uh, other countries, be they China, Russia, or anyone else. And that's just the truth if you look at it with open eyes. You know, um, China, for example, has much stronger family values than America at this point. Which is, which is by the way, one of the biggest reasons that China is winning, and not only China as the country, but Chinese. Chinese in America and Canada and Europe are winning because 
they retain their strong family structure because they don't engage and don't traffic in the nonsense of homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. Chinese are winning because their mothers care about their children more than going to the nail salon or to the next vacation or whatever, or chatting with their friends. And when they do chat with their friends, they chat about their kids and the kids' school and how they can pressure the school to be a better school. Chinese families will spend their last dime, last dime, to send their kids to a private school so they can avoid the horrid indoctrination of the American public school system and the low standards set by that same public school system. So, you know, China is an adversary to America geopolitically, for sure, because China wants to have the upper hand when it comes to uh, resources such as rare earth elements and energy such as oil and gas and also human um, talent or human resources, right? And it will do everything it can to have better access in America to all these things and better access to the world markets. But at the same time, China is an adversary in the same sense that the Soviet Union was an adversary, in the same sense that Germany was an adversary. And I guess in my previous exposition about America's arch-villain enemies, I forgot about Japan which for a while, albeit a brief while, only about four years, was number one between, four, between 1941 and 1945. Japan was number one on the list of America's arch enemies, and it was vilified just like China is today, if not more. And now, of course, it is an American ally. So <clears throat> self-definition via some sort of a negation of an enemy is another fairly dumb idea. And the trafficking on this, uh, in this by the American right right now <clears throat> is uh, uh, also pretty dumb. You cannot define yourself as the negative of your enemy. You cannot define yourself through your adherence to some uh, piece of political um, documentation in the mold of the American Constitution. Your sense of self as a human being does not depend neither on your enemies nor on any political system. Your freedom does not depend on your ability to elect your political leaders. Because whether you elect them or somebody else elects them or somebody appoints them or they just claw their way to power, however, um, however they do it, there's not, it has nothing, nothing to do with your, your freedom. And you may think I'm wrong about that, but let me convince you that I'm not. The people that most directly affect what you can and cannot do are actually your employers. Okay, so unless you're self-employed, which is a minority of people, 
the, the people that have the strongest and most extensive power over you and can most severely restrict your freedoms are actually your employers. And especially if you work for a larger corporation or, or the government. There is a variety of rules that they can enact and do enact that restrict what you can do and not only during uh, business hours. If you don't believe me, then try to go on social media and say this thing or that and see how quickly you'll be fired from your job. Okay? Even if you do it completely under your personal name, even a pseudonym, in other words, a fake name, if you get doxxed, you'll still be fired. It's not to do with your job. You may be working as an accountant in some corporation, but if you tweet this thing or that, boom, you're gone. You know, remember this lady in a, in a park, in, in Central Park in New York, and she got into some tiff, you know, with a dog owner, and I know she was bird watching, and he, or no, she had the dog, and he was bird watching, and anyway, they got into a tiff, and she was white, and he was black, and Vemo Presto, she was fired from her prestige job with one of the leading financial firms, right? Because she put that stuff on social media, or he did, doesn't matter. So in other words, who, who truly restricts your freedom is your employer. Next after that comes your local government. Maybe your condo board, your, co- your condominium association. Because eh? they, they tell you specifically what you can and cannot do, for example, with your front lawn. Okay, There's lots of places in America where, for example, if you have a RV trailer, let's say they won't let you put it on your front lawn. Or a boat. Who, who, I mean, who restricts your freedom that way? You own the land, right? Well, the, the, the community does. Whether it's the local township or your, uh, or maybe it's a gated community. So they have an association and they have rules and bylaws. And those are the things that restrict your freedoms the most, including... For example, guns and how you may own them or carry them. There's lots of places that say you cannot bring a gun here. And But you but you may say, well, the Second Amendment, then they say, we don't care. It's private property. Don't bring your gun here. And that's it. Right? So, you know, the federal government and even the state government, those governments that, you know, you're so... You're so committed to, to voting and electing the president, the Congress, the Senate. They're not the ones that have that much to do with your actual everyday freedoms. So all this frenzy that people are whipping themselves up to, into uh, after this uh, fraudulent election. I mean, it's, I find it uh, honestly to be quite amusing because who cares? I mean, who cares? America has changed. America has had Republican center-right, I guess you could call it, leadership more often than Democratic. Bill Clinton was to the right of most Republicans today. Okay. But did it stop America from drifting? I mean, talk about drifting, more like sprinting to the left. On every 
issue that counts on abortion or on, on, on sexual deviancy, on uh, the growth of government, on uh, exploding deficits and national debt, everything. Okay. Has there been any president who really uh, uh, adhered to any kind of conservative ideology? Has there been any? I mean, the president that perhaps came closest was uh, Clinton. Balanced the budget for a while. He was the quintessential law and order president. During his time, the 90s, Rudy Giuliani cleaned up New York and most American major cities were, were uh, clean and crime-free, I mean, substantially. So what's the difference? Republican, Democrat, they're all the same. They're all the same. Now, I'm not saying that you cannot say, I, I think this guy, Trump, is better than the other guy, Biden. Sure, sure, on the margins. On the margins. Between these two old dotards, okay, you know, one is a little better than the other one. Kamala Harris, sure, she's repulsive. But what, Marsha Blackburn, the center from Tennessee, she's somehow some sort of a paradigm of virtue? Of course not. All politicians suck. They're all, they're all the scum of the earth. Trump included. You think he cares about you personally? Of course he doesn't. He cares about himself like they all do. And only himself. So they sell us on a bunch of goods and it's always been that way. And we go and we vote and, and that's fine. But don't tie that to your sense of, sense of self-esteem, to your sense of who you really are. And I think that what's happening in America is precisely this crisis of who people really are, of their sense of, I mean, who are we? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate because for, for me, this question does not exist. I'm a Jew, that's it. I, it doesn't matter if I live in, was born in Ukraine or live in Israel, in US, Canada. It doesn't matter at all. My sense of self comes from my being Jewish. The only book that I care about in the sense of defining my identity is the Tanakh. What, what I guess my Christian friends would call the Old Testament, substantially. And the Talmud. So, that's it. <laughs> the rest doesn't matter to me one bit. I don't care if I live in, under a Republican government, uh, Democratic government, liberal, conservative, progressive. That's all nonsense. I don't care about it one bit. You know, when I lived in the States, I lived in Boston. Eh? And uh, Boston has this wonderful freedom trail. So it's um, basically a red line on the pavement made mostly of... Uh, red bricks, in some cases literally painted red on the asphalt. And what you can do, and it's a really cool thing to do uh, as a tourist, maybe after this uh, stupid epidemic is over and so on, is to walk the Freedom Trail. You can literally walk on that 
red line and the idea is that you experience all the events that unfolded in 1776 uh, kind of or and before leading to the american revolution and there and uh, there is the the ship the constitution and uh, and there is uh, uh, there are a lot many more attractions and the one of my favorite ones uh, is actually Paul Revere's house. And it still stands just like it did in 1776. And it, it's a museum today. You can visit it. And actually, if you go to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, you can see lots and lots of uh, Paul Revere's actual handiwork in silver and in pewter. And it's exquisite. I highly recommend it. And of course, Paul Revere was the guy that did that midnight ride from the Old North Church, which is also on the Freedom Tra Trail downtown Boston, and over to, I believe, Lexington, which is a suburb, to tell people that the British were coming from the sea. Right? Or something like that. So, you know, in the next segment, uh, because this segment is soon ending, we'll talk a little bit about Paul Revere and and his self uh, sense of self. Join me in the next segment. There's a great deal out there that's become very obvious to us: the crime, the destruction of our cities, the defunding the police calls, the tearing down of America's monuments, the corruption. What's not so obvious is where they're getting all the money from to do all of this. I'm here to tell you they're getting the money from you and I because we're not paying attention to where we're spending the money. And this is a real problem. I've become more conscious in my life when I take out my wallet of where that money is going. I want to know what their values are. Are they given to a lot of the Marxist groups? Are they selling out overseas? Or are they supporting American patriotic businesses and people who care about the country? I'm excited to tell you about a new movement in our country shop to the right.com. So this is a group of patriots who got together uh, with shared values. They're veteran owned and operated, and they decided to create a nationwide database and do something about the problem. So you want to go check out all the businesses on there. You can search by category or geography or whatever on there. Go check it out, shop to the right.com. We all need to start using this as a regular point of sale and a way to do business. And on top of that, if you have a business, you can list it there for free as well. The service is totally free. These guys want to make a difference. Now we all need to make a difference with our dollar. It's time, people. We got to do something about it. As I always say, time to get involved and get loud. This is how you do it right here. ShopToTheRight.com. Welcome back to the show, my friends. So we, um, in, the, in the last segment where we left off, was discussing what really makes a patriot and what is someone's self sense of self. And my thesis about this is that it has nothing to do with politics or political documents like the Constitution and has nothing to do with uh, your enemy of the day, be it Japan, China, Germany, radical Islam, you name it, Russia. It has to do with something much deeper than that. And 
as an example to to that 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 has something to do with America, the person that comes to mind is Paul Revere, and I was in the last segment. I was talking about how Boston, which I know very well because I lived there, has this wonderful tourist attraction called the Freedom Trail, and you can follow it. It's a red line in the pavement, and you basically see the historic Boston downtown and the old North Church and all the kind of areas that are associated with the American Revolution. And you can see Paul Revere's house, which is now a museum. Now, somebody like Paul Revere... What was his sense of self? I mean, how would he describe himself? When he said that he was a patriot, a word that derives from the word pater, from father, right? So patriot is somebody who you could say etymologically, linguistically, a patriot is somebody who honors his father's honors his ancestors, right? So it's a powerful word, right? Because it has a lot to do with the guys, the men and women who produced us, the generation living today, and has nothing to do with any piece of paper or parchment or with any political system, or with who our enemy at this point in time may be. Right? It, has, it, is, it refers, the word patriot refers only to generations past. Okay? Um, the word for... The English language has a bit of a problem with, with the word for your home country. Is it motherland, fatherland? You know, in Hebrew, there is a word muledet. Muledet means where I was born, where our nation was born. And for every Jew in the world who is worthy of that name, the only place that is our muledet, our fatherland, motherland, our native land, is, of course, Israel. We can be citizens of this or that country, but our native land is always Israel. Otherwise, we're not Jews. So, when you talk about Paul Revere, you have to ask yourself, when he described himself as a patriot, what was his native land? To which ancestry was he laying claim? And I think this um, question is not very difficult to answer. His native land was first and foremost Massachusetts. The Massachusetts colony. And second, not second in terms of importance, but maybe second in terms of mm, how should I say, the hierarchy of belonging was America. In other words, the 13 colonies that were settled by the British. But this is a very important point, because America at that time, North America, in 1776, had a bunch of different polities or different uh, areas. 
the biggest part of that, the biggest part of North America at that time in 1776 belonged to France. Okay, it was the La Nouvelle France, the new France, which extended from what today is Nova Scotia in the east to what today is Toronto in the west and down the Mississippi Valley, all the way to Louisiana. So the 13 colonies were kind of bounded on all sides by this new France. Other parts of North America belong to Spain, like Florida. Okay. And then, of course, the biggest part of the continent, the prairies, the West, was still under uh, political and physical control of Native American tribes or nations, or however you want to call them. And in 1776, in places like, you know, Kennebunkport, Maine, <laughs> there were still frequent attacks by uh, local native tribes uh, on the white settler population there. So when Paul Revere thought, when Paul Revere said, I am American, did he believe that he belonged to that that word American encompassed fr the French parts of America, the Spanish parts of America, or the native parts of America? And the answer to that question is an absolutely no. It's negative. Paul Revere did not for one second felt that he had anything to do with the French who settled in Nova Scotia or in Quebec, what today is Quebec, and then was called Canada or Lower Canada. Neither with the French in Louisiana. Neither with the various um, native tribes. When Paul Revere said, I am American, he meant only in the sense that he belonged to the, to the British colonies in America. So in the hierarchy of his patriotic self-definition, what underlay the word America was Britain. After being, what's the dem, dem, demonym for Massachusetts? I, I'm not sure, I should know. But after being from Massachusetts and from America, which, which, in which, by which he meant only the British colonies in America, under that, Paul Revere's self-identity was British, English, English. And his not far removed ancestor, ancestor certainly came from England. The language he spoke was English, of course. Maybe with a slightly different accent than his ancestors who came over on a ship from, from, from England, but nevertheless. Over all of that, his identity was Christian. So Paul Revere as the quintessential American patriot was, first of all, a guy from Massachusetts. Second of all, a guy from the British colonies in America. Third of all, an Englishman. Not in the sense that he felt allegiance to the British crown, which clearly he did not, 
or at least he renounced that allegiance, or he felt that the British crown betrayed him and was not worthy of his allegiance. But you see, people like Paul Revere and the rest of them, George Washington, you name it, they did not renounce their English nature. They did not renounce their language. They did not renounce their ancestry. They did not renounce their ideological and spiritual baggage, which included, to a very large degree, Christianity. On the contrary, they clung very strongly to all of these. The only thing that they renounced was the political organization, which was the organization of the British Empire. And in the Declaration of Independence, the Founding Fathers of America set very clearly a list of grievances, political in nature, that they had with King George III as the head of the British government. And they basically said, you know what? This political system to which we have, you know, hitherto belonged is not working for us anymore. In fact, it has engaged in all kinds of acts that we find repressive, oppressive, and unfair. And because we don't like this political system, because we find it odious, and in fact, impossible to bear, we're going to rebel against it, and we're going to form another political system, a different political system, which we find to be more just and more capable of acting in our own self-interest. But what the Founding Fathers precisely did not do was renounce <coughs> excuse me, their nature as belonging to this tribe of English people with everything that that implies. In fact, we know that in parts of North America that were settled by the French and, the, uh, and uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese, North America and South America, it was only the British colonies that did everything they could, and successfully so, in not mingling with the native populations or with the population of, uh, population of uh, African slaves that they imported. The French, uh, the Spanish, and the Portuguese has had a totally different model. The Spanish and the Portuguese actually promoted the mingling of populations, and I'm not assigning to it any positive or negative signs, I'm just saying. And because of that, the population in South America, actually from Mexico, which is in North America, and all the way through Brazil and Argentina and so on, is completely mixed between the Spanish and Portuguese white so-called European settlers and native, um, I guess you could call Indians and uh, black African slaves that were brought there to, to work the sugar plantations and so on. 
in French Canada, there is a whole kind of category called Matisse, which are mixed uh, native Indian and white race people, I guess you could say. Even though France made somewhat of an effort to import Fila Maria, they call them, um, women to marry to, 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 to New France, so that because they weren't that happy with this, uh, I guess, cross. Uh, uh, crossing between uh, French white settlers and the local native population. But when it came to the British colonies, that was very, very much frowned upon, rightly or wrongly. But what was the reason for that? The reason for that was that the British, co the British colonists, even though second, third, whatever generation, felt themselves very much part of that British nation, even though they had not do with it, with this, they wanted nothing to do with the with the British political system and fought very hard from 1776 to 1781 to replace the British political system. In other words, to replace the British colonial uh, rule with but when you look at Americans today, what is an American patriot? I mean, Americans today, uh, only a minority harken back to some sort of British settlers, right? Most are from other places. Other places in Europe and other places around the world. And, and so there is a kind of a... And also, I should say, uh, while many Americans are still Christian, they're not Christian in a sense that existed in 1776. In other words, Christianity does not fill their entire world. And for some people it does, not for many, relatively speaking. And then there are Americans who don't care about religion at all, and Americans who belong to other religions, such as Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, you name it. So when it comes to self-identity to this word patriotism well my question is what ancestry which is implied by that word patriot is being adhered to right? it's an open question that I cannot answer but I think that the collapse that America is experiencing ex experiencing right now has everything to do with the fact that the definition of American patriotism had be went all the way from being very strong to being substantially non-existent. It went from Paul Revere, who knew exactly who he was, and hence it was easy for him to say, I am a patriot. He knew what he meant when he said that. But today, many people in America who, who say we are patriots, what is meant by that? To go back again to this whole constitution thing, which is nothing but a political document that has been substantially emptied of its original meaning and can be further emptied by amending it, and the body that is supposed to guard it, the Supreme Court, has done nothing but ruin it? That, that is not close to, to, to being enough. 
Saying that China is bad? That doesn't make you a patriot. Today China is bad, tomorrow somebody else will be bad. So what is it then? What is it? Because unless America can define itself again, there will be no recovering it as a nation. And honestly speaking, I don't think that that will happen. I think too much has been lost. See you next time, my friends. Stay free.